Well, good morning to you all. Um, I welcome you to Cornerstone. It's my great privilege to be speaking your word. And uh, just for the record, uh, it was Bob who called me Monday <laughs> morning, Monday morning and uh, said, uh, if you would like, you can uh, continue on your message. I'll give you that, uh, that opportunity to do that. And I was humbled <laughs> to do that, um, but he didn't seem to mind. Um, today we're going to continue in Romans 5, and uh, I just want to start with a word of prayer before we begin uh, our time together. Father, thank you for uh, this uh, glorious uh, Sunday that we can come as your gathered church to worship you. We thank you for just the, the great uh, gift of, of song that we can worship you through um, the word that is, is, is put to music, Lord, and we just thank you for allowing us, Lord, to come uh, to hear from you as well, from your great and precious word. We thank you for the salvation that comes through grace alone by faith, and we just glory in it today, Lord. We cannot uh, really fathom the, the depth of these truths that you have given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. But today we ask, Lord, that you would help us to hear from our Apostle Paul and clearly understand the word as it is uh, given today. Pray that you would speak through me, a sinner, safe through grace, and you would allow me to speak with clarity, with power and passion, the truth that is so glorious and indescribable. We pray now for the hearts of every believer here, and even those who do not know you yet, that you would um, prepare them for your word, and that they would humbly receive it with great uh, joy. We thank you for this time, and we thank you for, again, your church, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I was talking uh, with a a woman at Biola, um, the school where I, I attend, uh, um, and she was talking about uh, women, women and men's role uh, in the marriage. She, she's been married 37 years, and she was describing how her husband protects her, how her husband keeps her secure, how she can totally put her trust in him. She explained how this wasn't always the case in her, her marriage. Um, in the beginning of her marriage, she recounted her husband, who was a salesman, going off um, to various places uh, month after month, uh, traveling, and she would be left at her apartment alone. Every time she, he would be preparing to leave, she would just um, get very emotional and get very tense and very you know, much trying to talk her husband into staying, please don't go. Um, one time, though, she remembers, she, she recounted that her husband, uh, as she was kind of getting emotional, um, gently pinned her against the wall and said, you're going to be okay. I have made means to keep you safe, but you're going to be okay, and I'm going to be back. And he said, um, I've talked to the, na the neighbors upstairs, in the apartment upstairs, the family up there, and I've told them that 
If you hear any noise, just a, a knock on the wall to immediately come down and check on my wife. Um, and besides that, um, I've, I've made sure everything was in place, that anything were to happen to me, that these are the things you can, these are the things listed here on this piece of paper that you can call just in case of emergency. And she said from that point on, she felt a, a sense of greater security, um, greater security whenever he would have to leave, knowing that he had foreseen her insecurities and put these things into place. She said later that evening as she was vacuuming, her vacuum fell on the ground and her neighbor immediately came down and opened the door and said, are you okay? And she said, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine, it's okay. And so here is uh, an example of, in a marriage relationship, how um, in this case, the wife needed security, needed some sense of safety, and her husband gave it to her in some tangible ways. Well, besides the need for security in this life, the ultimate question that all of us face, uh, Howard in his testimony this morning, and I thank uh, for, for this testimony, shared that there was a point in time where he started to think about eternal things with the death of his friend. Well, in this case, uh, when we talk about security, uh, this is the ultimate um, truth that we need to understand. This is the ultimate security that we need to know. And in the evangelical church, salvation, salvation in Christ is the pinnacle of the church. And if we cannot have security in this truth, then the pillars uh, that make the church stand fall to the ground. In a book, uh, this is a quote by a person in the church, in the evangelical church, who has said this, and I quote, some truly converted people have fallen from grace and the danger of doing so threatens every Christian. He says, some truly converted people have fallen from grace and are in danger, and the danger of doing so threatens every Christian, end quote. Now, if that statement is true, a statement made within the church about eternal security, and if it's true that some Christians can be saved, but then lose their salvation, and that every Christian is in danger of not being saved, or at some time losing that salvation, then this, this apparent truth is very important for us to hear. But is that what the scriptures tell us? What does the Bible tell us about this truth about eternal security. Now this is a, a debate theologically. It's a doc, this doctrine, this um, evangelical Christian espoused is a doctrine that basically says that salvation is conditional. Salvation is only good so long as you meet the conditions required for you as a Christian. In other words, God saves us, and now we have to continually match our lives to that salvation. And if we don't match up, then we might be in danger of losing that precious salvation. This is a doctrine 
that can stunt the Christian's growth. This is a doctrine that can cause fear in the life of the believer at its core. And if this is true, then we need to understand uh, what the Bible teaches on it. But if it's not, we need to be very, very uh, careful in looking at those passages that teach the truth. Can we lose our salvation? Is our eternal life secure? Well, last week we went through a few of the fruits of, of glorious, uh, the glorious fruits of justification. I said another title passage for this would be Secure Salvation in Christ. Well, Paul in great detail in Romans 5 goes and hits this very issue at its uh, target. And today, we're going to look at some of the latter part of these glorious uh, fruits. Um, but we, will, we found that this author and those Christians who believe that we can lose our salvation, who are in the Arminian camp, as opposed to the Calvinist camp, um, are understanding salvation in a limited sense. They are not understanding salvation is from God and is only from God, but they are putting too much weight in man. And as we will see today, we're going to talk about the, the final three fruits of salvation as we look at the latter part of Romans 5, 1 through 11. So let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Last week, we went over three fruits of justification. And if you notice today, there were five last week. <laughs> there, are, there are six today. <laughs> and so we're going to go further into verse 11 a little bit more. So now we have Three more to go. The first three, let me remind you, is this glorious truth. Verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God is the first point. Remember, the opposite of peace is what? War. Beforehand, we were at war with God. And though we, did, though we may not have recognized it, God was our enemy. And through Jesus Christ, we have found peace with God. The second point was in verse 2a, through whom we have obtained our introduction or access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The second point was we have access to grace in which we stand. And you remember how the Jew would find this extremely um, new this understanding of access with God because in the Old Testament and even in the Judaism that was in Jesus' time, they didn't understand God as approachable but distant. Um, never approaching that final point of the Holy of Holies in the temple or the tabernacle. We can never approach God fully. But now through Jesus Christ, we have access and it is in grace in which we stand. The third point we went, we went over, um, the extended point that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, even in suffering. 
It says in the latter part of verse 2, And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Here we see that we can rejoice. And I give a few understanding of what that term glory of God means. Um, the return of Christ, our glorified bodies. And I'm going to re return to that as we look at some of these other points. And because we have this permanent hope, we can endure suffering, trials, because within this process, God is maturing us as believers and developing us tested, proven character in our Christian walk. And today, we get to the fourth point, the fourth point. And look, let's look at um, the latter part of verse 5. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. These few verses are probably, James said, those first three verses in chapter 5 were the ones that brought him to salvation. I would say these 6 through 8 brought me to salvation. Um, this glorious truth right here. But today we're going to look at the point number four, letter D in your outline, that we have the love of God in our hearts. We have the love of God in our hearts. So today we're first going to talk about the love of God. And this is just a truth that I cannot possibly wrap my arms around in just one teaching. It's a glorious truth that I hope you will understand by the end of our time together. Um, verses 6 through 8 come into play. Remember, all based on justification by faith in Jesus Christ. And here, Paul gives a little side note about the love of God to further prove the permanence of our salvation in Christ. So today we're going to first, under this category, define God's love or the love of God, and then we're going to say how that is applied to the believer in verse 5. So I'm going to skip over verse 5, that latter part I just read there, and go directly to 6 through 8, and then come back to verse 5, um, so that we can first establish what the love of God is, and then understand how it has come into our lives as believers. But first, we need to look at the backdrop of the love of God. We need to see things in its true form. And by doing that, we want to set a background that helps glorify the love of God as the Bible displays it. And so today, we're going to first look at the depravity, or look at man in the sinful state of man, and then move on to understand 
further through that, the love of God. So today, we're going to first look at those terms that Paul uses for the unregenerate man, the sinner without God, the person that we were before Christ entered our lives. And we're going to look at those terms. And there are four of them here. Look at verse 6. For while we were still helpless. The first term here is helpless. Helpless. This term is also translated weak, powerless, without strength, feeble, sluggish, in doing right, and so on. This term refers to spiritual weakness, destitution of strength for what is spiritually good, and a weakness arising and consisting in sinfulness. This term, helpless. It says, for a while we were still helpless. In this context, it's referring directly to the lack of power to do anything to please God or achieve salvation. One commentator makes it um, clear by making a distinction between a conditional impossibility and an unconditional impossibility. And let me explain what those two are. Conditional impossibility and an unconditional impossibility. A conditional impossibility is one that we are unable to do, um, one in which we are unable to do unless something else happens. For example, we might find it impossible to repay a loan unless we earned a large sum of money. Condi conditional impossibility. Or, another example is, we might be unable to accept an invitation to a social event unless a prior commitment was canceled. That is a conditional impossibility. I can't do it unless certain circumstances come into play. But if they do, then I will be able to do it. An unconditional impossibility is one in which no possible change in circumstance can alter. And this describes our pre-converted state. This is the, the sense of helpless. There is no possible change in my circumstance um, that I can alter that would change my position of helplessness, powerlessness, weakness, unable to have, um, uh, to please God or, or obtain any sort of salvation. And that is the term that Paul uses here. Describes our pre-converted state. Helpless, powerless, no human circumstance could change that except God. But what were we specifically unable to do? What were those things we were unable to please God with? Um, there were a variety of things that scriptures say. I'll just go over a few here and you can listen. We were unable to understand spiritual things. We were unable to understand spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2.14 but the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Without the gift of the Holy Spirit, without salvation, you cannot understand spiritual things. 
we were unable to understand spiritual things, things of God, things of eternal eternity, things of spirituality. 1 Corinthians 2.14. Also, we were unable to see the kingdom of God or enter into it. We were unable to see the kingdom of God or enter into it. John 3, and our pastor James went through this passage, 3 and 5. John 3, 3 and 5. Jesus said and answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot see nor enter the kingdom of God. And that is another way we were helpless or powerless. Also, a third thing here is we were unable to seek God. Unable to seek God. Earlier in Romans, Romans 3.11, Paul says, There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. None who seeks for God. There's no person in their depraved state who is longing after God or seeking after God. No, the Bible says that we were unable to seek God. Ephesians 2.1, it says, We were dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins, unable to move, unable to get up, unable to live. And that was caused by our sins. We could not seek God. And Paul describes this in our former state as being helpless. And that's the first term he uses here. Let me move on to the second term in verse 6 um, as well. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for what? The ungodly. Who? The ungodly. The ungodly is the second term used here. And this is the same term that he uses earlier in Romans. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That term ungodliness um, the, the recipients of God's wrath. Ungodliness there is the term that is used here. And ungodliness or ungodly does not merely mean that we are unlike God, although that's true. But here it's more of a fierce state of opposition to him. And let me kind of illustrate that in, in, in terms. God is sovereign, but they oppose him. In his sovereignty. They do not want him to rule over their lives. They want to be free to do as they please. Ungodly. They say God is holy. And they oppose him in his holiness. This means that they do not accept his righteousness. They do not accept his proper moral standards. They do not want their sinful acts or desires to be called into question. Or in terms of God's omniscience. They oppose his omniscience. They are angry that he knows them perfectly. That nothing they think or do is hidden from his sight. They are also opposed to his immutability. His unchanging nature. They are angry that God does not change in his opinions. Change in his understanding or his promises or in any of his other attributes. This is what the term of ungodly, un-against God. We, these describe unregenerate um, men and women. Women without God. Our former state. In the third 
picture in which he tries to uh, display here is in verse 8. Let's go down to verse 8. We'll skip over 7. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And here the term sinners is used. And this is a term we are familiar with. It's those who have fallen short of a standard. Those who have fallen short of God's standard. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It means that we have missed the mark, failed to live up to the standard of God, failed to treat others properly, to have respected them, respected them to treat others um, and love others as we love ourselves. It's breaking the second um, of the great commandment, second point of the great commandment. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, You shall love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is probably um, the, the, the term you would probably use was the, the one I just went over, ungodly. But here's the second part. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. It is the second sense here of going against um, the standard that God has set. And one of those standards is loving your neighbor as yourself. We don't meet those standards. We miss the mark. That is describing the sinner. The final term here, as we are moving toward the love of God, is verse, in verse 10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of of his son. And we'll stop there. The final word Paul uses in this section to describe human beings apart from Christ is this term enemies. This word affirms not only were we, are we unable to save ourselves, helpless, or unlike or opposed to God, ungodly, or violators of his law, sinners, but we are also opposed to God in the sense that we would attack and destroy him if we could. Being like Satan in his desires, we would drag God's name in the dirt. We would cast him off his throne. We would try to crush him if that were possible. And you say, no, I would not. But are you any different than those who did the exact same, or tried to do the exact same thing to God incarnate when he was here on earth? He was persecuted, he was beaten, he was even put to death on a cross. That is the sense of enemies. We are God's enemies and we are out to destroy him if we could. Now here is not a pretty picture. This is not something that um, those who would preach positive thinking would want to say. This is not uh, something that the humanists would want to hear. But this is the picture that Paul frames for us to understand the love of God in Jesus Christ. I was talking to James earlier this week, and he said there's a church that will not speak on sin. Why? Because life is hard enough. We don't want to burden people with sin. The Bible says that is the heart of the matter. 
that is directly where we need um, to be healed from, to be saved from, the state of sin. It strikes at the core of mankind's need. And Paul, to this point, has been doing that in his argument from Romans. Um, and we've gotten to verse 5. Now, here is the backdrop. Helpless, ungodly, sinners, enemies of God. Now, turning from this dark side, let's turn to the positive side. The love of God in Christ. Now, what do we think about when we think of human love? Natural human love. It's almost invariably that we think of the attractiveness of the object being loved. We are inclined to love those people who what? Love us. Um, so we tend, when we think about the love of God, impose that onto God as well. We think that his love for us is dependent on how good we are or how much we love him. But note the picture that Paul has painted. Um, and um, we can see from both sides that we did not love God. In fact, we did exactly the opposite. So now we can understand truly what love is by seeing we're enemies. We're helpless, ungodly sinners. But God, nevertheless, in spite of all these things, we weren't lovely, we weren't lovable, we weren't people seeking after him, we weren't trying to obey him. No, we were far from it. We hated God and all the things that had to do with God, but God still loved us. This is the love of God that Paul is speaking of. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This love of God is unconditional, not based on anything we were or what we did. And even more, God did not merely reach out a helping hand, but he sent his beloved son to die for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for us. So this sense of human love that we may have or that the world is trying to teach us is far and beyond any type of love that God himself is talking about or what the Bible speaks of. Human love is clearly contrasted with divine love. And look at verse 7. It says, For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. Paul's point here is that while a human being might be willing to give his life for a righteous or better yet, a morally superior woman or man under certain circumstances, Jesus dies for us while we were still sinners. And let me give you an illustration. He's comparing human love and the limits of that human love toward the immeasurable love of God. Let me give you two illustrations and two stories. Um, this is a story of two men, two men who were trapped in a mine that caved in. And poisonous gas was escaping and entering into that cave. One man had a wife and children. 
And both of them had gas masks, just in case this will happen. But that man who had the wife and children with this, um, this uh, cave-in, his gas mask was shattered, broken. The second man who had a perfectly working gas mask took off that mask and put it on the other man. And this is what he said. You have Mary and the children. They need you. I am alone. You can go. Or I can go, I should say. I am alone. I can go. And when we hear about this, we have a sense of the heroic spirit of the human. I mean, human, human love. But there are limits to that love. Let me give you a second story of a youngster who had a sister who needed an operation. After this operation, it was found that she needed a blood transfusion. And the boy was asked to volunteer, young boy. He accepted, and he was taken bedside for a blood transfusion. And when the transfusion was over, the doctor put his arm on the boy's shoulder and told him, you've been very brave. But the doctor had not even known the bravery of this young boy. Because once he had said that, he said steadily to the doctor, he said, Doc, how much longer before I croak? He had gotten the idea that he would have to die in order to save his sister. And he was willing to do that. And he was just waiting for the blood to come out of him so that he can croak or die. Here again, we see something of the highest human love. But here again, we are not even close to Romans 5 and what Paul is talking about here. We learn that it was not for those who were close to him or those who loved him that Jesus died, but those who were opposed to God and were his enemies. And on this basis, God commends his love to us. This is true love. This is love at its pinnacle. Now let's go back to verse 5, the latter part there. And it says, hope does not disappoint because the love of God, this love that we've been talking about now, this immeasurable, indescribable love has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul says, that this love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's undeserved. It's indescribable. It's in the backdrop of us being sinners. God poured out within our hearts uh, this love through the Holy Spirit. And this poured out refers not to a, a dripping or a drops, but it refers to the point of outpouring, to the point of overflowing, immeasurable torrents, not, not a dropping of a faucet, but of a massive river. That is the love of God poured out into the heart of the believer. And it is only by the Spirit that this is true. Ephesians 1, 13 says there that the Holy Spirit is, is, uh, is the promised Holy Spirit, verse 13, who was given as a pledge for our inheritance. A pledge for our inheritance. That word 
literally is translated the earnest or the erebon in Greek. The pledge. This term pledge means in, the, in modern Greek, it refers to an engagement ring. Okay, some of us can relate to that. An engagement ring or a down payment. In other words, when you become a Christian, you've been given the Holy Spirit who's the guarantor of your redemption, your salvation, guarantee of heaven, guarantee of persevering to the end, guaranteeing your security. And this is what the Holy Spirit indwelling you gives to every Christian. And this Holy Spirit produces this outpouring of the awareness of the love of God. It speaks of a personal, intimate ministry of God through the Holy Spirit that gives us subjective, emotional flooding of uh, the Father's love into our hearts. God assuring us through the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 also talks about this. It says, um, For you are being led by the Spirit of God, and these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which you cry out, Abba, Father. And listen to this, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if we indeed suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words... Uh, the believer understands this intimate love of God that has been poured out. And it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to do this. The unbeliever feels none of that. The unregenerate lives as an individual, senses no affinity to God, no intimacy with God, no real communion with God. But those who know Jesus Christ, God has put his spirit in us. And the Spirit draws us into an intimate love relationship with the living Father, living God himself. So that is point one. It is the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So let's move on to verses 9 and 10, and hopefully 11. Uh, letter E. Not only has the love of God... Well, let me give you one quote before I go into the God's wrath here. What does this love of God being poured out uh, by, by the Holy Spirit and the cost in God demonstrating his love through his son Jesus Christ mean for us? Well, Charles Hodge in his commentary kind of gives us an understanding of what this means as far as security. He says this, If God loved us because we loved him, he would love us only so long as we love him. And on that condition, and then our salvation would depend on the constancy of our treacherous hearts. But as God loved us as sinners, as Christ died for us as ungodly, our salvation depends, as the apostle argues, not on our loveliness, but on the constancy of the love of God. End quote. The love of God keeps us secure in our salvation. Now let's move on to the next point. We shall be saved from God, God's wrath. We shall be saved from God's wrath. 
verses 9 and 10. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In this last argument, Paul is providing us an argument. It's an argument from that is similar to uh, Jewish thinkers' uh, way of putting arguments. Um, there is an argument called an argument from light or heavy, from lesser to the greater. Jesus used this in Matthew 7, 11. He said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good, good, good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father, who is in heaven, give you what is good to those who ask him? If we as parents give good gifts, then how much more will God give us good gifts? It's from the lesser to the greater. Well, here is the opposite of that. It's from the greater to the lesser in Romans 5. And we see from the terms much more than or much more, verse 9, verse 10, that these arguments are based upon a greater thing that God has already done for us in the, in the death of Christ. And these great works are justification and reconciliation. If God has done these two great works, then this other thing is consequential. Of course he'll do these things. And what is this thing that he's, he's saying, he's speaking of? Well, the question some Christians ask, or some who don't know if they're a Christian, they ask, are you saved? Are you saved? Well, most of us will say yes if we are Christians, right? But there's a sense where um, we can say yes and no. Okay? Now let me explain this. You can say yes, I am, when you're talking about justification by faith. But when you're talking about salvation as a whole, there are three stages. Justification, and that's what Paul's been entreating this whole time. Sanctification, which is the process of becoming like Christ in holiness. And the final thing, which I talked about last time, glorification, being like Christ, being saved from the actual judgment of Christ, and being glorified into his likeness, perfect without sin. It is this latter part here, that Paul is referring to, save from the wrath of God. It's this sense where I am saved, but practically, judgment has not occurred yet. The wrath of God has not been poured upon the earth. But on that day, I am guaranteed that I will not undergo the wrath that was supposed to be due to me, but Christ has covered over me and given me salvation. So that's the yes and no. And generally you'll say yes, okay? But here we're talking about salvation from the wrath of God. First Thessalonians 1.10 says, And we wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Brothers and sisters, you have to understand that no Christian is ever going to stand in judgment before God. No one is ever going to know the wrath of God, the full fury of God upon sin. 
This is an astounding truth that we need to understand every day of our life. D. Martin Lloyd Jones says this, and I quote, The apostles' argument is that this method, this way of salvation that God has planned is a complete whole, and therefore if we have been justified by Christ's blood, we are joined to Christ, we are in Christ, and therefore shall, shall be saved by him completely and perfectly in the end. End quote. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. So, in other words, Paul's saying, if God has already justified and reconciled you, then the final judgment is just going through actual, the, the motions of that great truth that has already been done. Of course, he's going to save you from the end. But Paul also says, says, almost an opposite, we have been reconciled, um, so shall we be saved by his life, in verse 10. This term reconcile is a little bit different from justification. It refers to, it refers to a restoration of a relationship from hostility to friendship. Reconciliation. Restoration of a relationship from hostility to friendship. And so what Paul is saying here, if God has, while we were enemies, restored friendship with God, then how much more will he secure our final salvation? How much shall we be secured by his life? John 14, 19 says this, After a little while the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me because I live you shall live also. Romans 8:11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So here are two ways Paul is working from the greater to the lesser. And all these and what he is talking about here is pointing toward the final salvation from the wrath of God and we can be secure in it. We can be secure in it. So the love of God in our hearts, saved from the wrath of God, and now finally we have joy in the Lord. Joy in the Lord. Verse 11. And not only this, um, but we also rejoice in God our Lord through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. This term, exult or rejoice, um, I think is, is better understood in our vernacular as rejoice. And now we see that the object of our rejoicing is God himself, very similar to verse uh, 2, where we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And this joy comes as a result as a fruit of justification. Let me briefly go over a few things we can rejoice in. Namely, we can rejoice in who God is. We can rejoice in any or all of his attributes. And our passage suggests a few of those attributes, and I'll just briefly tell you them. 
It talks about God's grace or God's mercy. I already talked about that through God's love. It's grace that is, is undeserving, favor that is undeserving. In fact, it is for us, it's favor that is not only undeserving, but we are getting the opposite of what we ought to have. Showing through the death of Christ and God's love for us the immeasurable attribute of, of, of God's love and God's grace for mankind. We also see God's power here. We see the power of defeating, defeating sin, defeating Satan. We are reminded of Genesis 3.15, where directly after the curse entered into humanity, it says, as then speaking to Satan, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head. It's first reference to God's redemptive plan in history. God will defeat Satan, will defeat sin, and it reveals his omnipotent power over all things. Third, I've already uh, mentioned this, but we talk about God's immutability. In this passage, we find that God does not change. He does not suddenly change his mind or cast, of, cast us off, but he will always remain because he is immutable and he has proven himself through this great act in sending his son. Arthur Pink says this, Herein is solid comfort. Human nature cannot be relied on, but God can. However unstable I may be, however fickle my friends may prove, God changes not. If he varied as we do, if he will do one thing today and another tomorrow, if he, control, if he were controlled by caprice, who could confide in him? But all praise to his glorious name, he is ever still the same. End quote. These are a few ways we can rejoice in God. And these are a few of the attributes that, God, that Paul has displayed in this passage for us today. So let us review. We talked about last week, peace with God. Access by grace in which we stand. Rejoicing in the hope of glory, even in suffering. Today we talked about the love of God in our hearts and what this love of God given by the Holy Spirit actually is. We talked about salvation from God's wrath. And finally, we talked about the joy that can come from only God himself. All these things speaks directly to what I talked about in the introduction can our salvation be lost? Can we lose our salvation? Are we secure in Christ? The, well, if you're going to talk to Paul, he would say, yes. And here are all the reasons why it is the fruit of justification. The root of salvation is from God himself. And God is um, the standard he, there's no one greater, there's no one who can usurp that final judgment, that final authority, and it's a glorious truth that we need to cherish 
that we know that we have eternal security in Christ. Let me close with an understanding of John 3.16. Um, this was printed on a little card that I found um, on the internet. And here is kind of a display of God's love and our secure salvation. Just listen to this. Kind of giving emphasis, an amplified version of John 3.16. God, the greatest lover, so loved to the greatest degree the world, the greatest company that he gave, the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that's, who, that's whosoever, the greatest opportunity, believeth, the greatest simplicity, in him, the greatest attraction should not perish, the greatest promise, but the greatest difference have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. In conclusion, for application's sake, I need to first address those who do not know Christ. Like I said last week, those who are without Christ are in a state that the Bible calls um, without peace, apart from God, no hope, no ability to seek after Him, no love of God that I talked about today, no saving from God's wrath, and no joy as it truly is. But I would urge you today, those of you who do not know him, who do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to come before his glory and repent of your sins and give your life to him and find the glorious treasures that we all as Christians, the glorious fruit that we as all Christians have obtained through no means of our own, except through Jesus Christ. So I will first address those of you who need to give your life over to him. And I would ask that you seek out someone if you would choose to do that today. For the believers, I would say, these glorious truths, I, I could not even go through, even though I went over time, I couldn't completely give you these glorious truths. But D. Martin Lloyd-Jones suggests that we don't always rejoice in God. We don't find joy in the Lord sometimes in our day-to-day -day walk as Christians because we don't do three things. And I would say that these things are true even in my life. He suggests three things that we need to do as Christians in order for us to allow our mind and our perspective and our hearts to be in the right place and to understand these glorious truths. He said the first thing is we need, there, there is a failure to grasp the truth of justification by faith alone. A failure to grasp the truth of justification 
by faith alone. We don't rejoice because we fail to grasp the truth of justification alone. Secondly, we fail to meditate as we ought. We fail to meditate as we ought. That is, we fail to think about what we, what we do know, what the scriptures have revealed. Um, similar to what the psalmist says, how can, we keep a, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to thy word. I've hidden thy word in my heart that's, that I may not sin against thee. It's, we need to meditate on these truths and we need to um, understand it as we continue to live our lives because these are things that we place we can place all our hope in because they are secure. And thirdly, we fail to rejoice because we fail to draw the necessary conclusions from scripture. There's a failure to bring doctrine home into our life. We need to understand and practice in lieu of these truths, in the way that we live, in the way that we uh, work, in the way that we go to the school, in the way that we live our lives here on earth, we need to live these truths out in our lives. We live in the truth on the basis of these fruits of justification. And then we can rightly rejoice in suffering, be a witness and reflect Christ, and be ambassadors for him on this earth and find joy in the end. So, let's bow our heads now as we end. that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how we, will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Father, we thank you for this glorious truth. We thank you for our salvation in you. Father, we give you praise that we can live our lives day to day knowing that our eternal life is secure. Our destiny is set. And it is all because you chose to come to us, to redeem us. Lord, you knew how much we were your enemies, how much we hated you, how much we did not seek after you, Lord. But still, you did not only seek after us, but you sent your precious only begotten son to die on our behalf for the sins that we have committed against you and allowed us to have salvation by faith through grace. Father, help us to live in awe of this glorious truth. And as we live in the daily trials, the daily sufferings, as we are being more and more purged of our sin, pray, Lord, that you would help us to meditate and rest our hearts in Christ alone, and that you would, like the psalmist say, keep us near the cross. Father, we thank you for each brother and sister here, and we thank you for their lives in you. And we pray, Lord, that your word would transform it into your likeness more and more. And we pray also for those who do not know you now, Lord, we pray that you would, by your spirit, awaken their sinful hearts, allow them to see your truth, and allow them to repent of their sins and humbly bow before your throne and accept your gracious gift, the gospel, the good news of salvation. We thank you, Lord, for this time. And we thank you for your word. And we thank you for blessing us by speaking to us through your holy scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.